Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. And I'm Caroline Maloney. I am the Director of Sales Training and Enablement here at Science. Occasionally, we get really good storytellers on the podcast. And today, we might have just stumbled upon the best in Chris Bell, the President and CEO of Connect and Sell. Yeah, Eric, this is my favorite podcast episode yet. I have to I have to say to you and listen, it's because this man is he's brilliant. Uh he breaks down an intro to a cold call in a way that I promise you have never heard before. He color codes in real time. He color codes a psychological breakdown for every word of an intro that he has seen successful because it's been tested with millions of dials and conversations. He has a huge data pool to work from. Yeah, you really can't fake the funk when you're talking about 700 million dials over the course of a 10-year career with Connect and Sell. So it's not only kind of like a good listen, but it's also data-driven in a way that I think there's a lot of meat on the bones for our listeners to take away what Chris is saying and apply it directly into yours or your team's daily activities. Yeah, I'd venture to say, Eric, this is the most tangible podcast yet in terms of taking away this exercise that he lays out almost, right? It's it's like a cheat sheet for an exercise for a sales leader, or for a sales coach. Yeah, we, we let this one run long because frankly, it was that good. And yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> might be our longest podcast episode yet, right? <laughs> so, I mean, without further ado, let's get right to it because the goodies just, they, they keep on coming. Hey! Hello, hey. Chris. Caroline. Eric. How are you? Good. Never better. I've been a little like uh, talked out, but I'll talk some more because my talking ability apparently is unlimited as far as <laughs> no one's ever found the edge of it. So I'm going to so easy on you. That is what we're hoping for on the podcast. I've got, uh, I've got a big, a big uh, rib roast in the sous vide. It's two and a half hours in. It's got three more to go. And then, and then, uh, my gosh, it's been a good day. How do you get involved with Connect and Sell? Former employee called me up one day when I was about to move to Tucson. And I was considering taking a job with a solar energy company in Tucson that my patent attorney was associated with. And I'd done a lot of work with them and was really prepared to come down here where I am now in Southern Arizona. And uh, I'm a physicist, mathematician by background. And, and solar energy is very interesting. It was very exotic solar energy and a very famous guy. So it's the guy who builds all the world's biggest telescopes. And a former employee called and said, hey, you got to look at my company, Connect and Sell, where I work. And I looked at it and I said, do you know what the phrase wholly uninterested means? And he said, I think so. And then he pivoted. He said, but you got to meet my CEO, Sean McLaren. And I said, the Sean McLaren? He said, sure. <laughs> brightly. <laughs> I said, well, I'll meet that guy, but I thought he was dead. And uh, so that's one of his appealing features. I would always go meet a dead guy. And I mean, who wouldn't, right? That one's pretty straightforward. That's not a hard decision. But he was the inventor of the IBM mainframe storage industry. 
And he's also, he also built the world's first cybersecurity company. So back in the 70s and 80s, this guy's like famous in circles that I ran in in Boulder, Colorado, and those because storage was big there. So I went to meet Sean and five minutes into the meeting, I just couldn't believe it. I said, so Sean, are you telling me that you've reinvented the business telephone to call a list instead of an individual? And the mathematical consequence is a 10 times increase in the flow rate of the only thing that counts in business which is conversations between somebody who might have a problem and somebody who might have a solution to that problem. And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, so is it an idea or a product? He said, it's a product. Do you sell it? Yeah. For money? Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm it's in. better. <laughs> so I just said, I'm in. And he said, well, what if I'm not hiring? I said, Sean, this is America. It's a free country. I can work for whomever I want. You can choose to pay me or not. So apparently he chose to pay me. This is in 2011. And so here we are, you know, 11, you know, 10 and a half years later, coming up on 11 years later. And that's how I got involved. I estimated quickly in my mind, here's, here's my thinking. There's 20 million sales reps they need to have in order to be able to just function they need to have each about five conversations a day with people they've either spoken with before or not. So that's 100 million conversations a day. If one could charge some reasonable amount of money for either the conversations or the dials that lead to them or something, it's the biggest TAM anybody's ever seen. And there's going to be a million problems. I had that sense too. That's just not going to be easy. But yeah, you know, why not? Right. I like big problems. And so. I, uh, he, he kindly took me on board and he actually paid me and everything still does. It's all you can ask for really, I think. Right. You know, well, so it sounds like you guys sell opportunities, right? You guys sell, you know, connections and, and opportunities for salespeople to do what they do best. I, and I wonder how you guys positioned yourself. And maybe if you were in early enough for this, how did you guys position that early on? How did, how did you start to differentiate yourself from other folks who sold these kinds of opportunities. Yeah, it's really interesting because there's there's three things that happen out there and one doesn't want to be, well, we didn't want to be any of those three things. First, we didn't want to be a dialer. And that was my first reaction. I saw the Connect and Sell website and I said, it's a dialer. I'll slip my wrist before I'll run a dialer company. And I really like myself, so I would not slip my wrist. Therefore, we can kind of guess I didn't want to run a dialer company. And, uh, you know, solar energy to totally change the world economy. Yeah, dialer company, uh-uh, not that. So you had to differentiate from that and had to differentiate on the other side from appointment setting. Because there's companies like, you know, BAO and all sorts of good companies out there, appointment setting, and this clearly wasn't that. So it had the problem, which I knew was a problem, and I don't like this problem of being brand new. So you know, the difference between disruption, which is easy, high, I'll come in at one third the price with something that's good enough, or I could come in as a, you know, a, into a known category where I think I have some advantage and take that category, but a non-category where you have to ask a question like this, ah, bad stuff. But I figured the TAM's big enough, we'd go for it. So the way we differentiated ourselves was simple. We used our own technology 
to cut through all the noise and talk to people. And once you're in a conversation, marketing no longer applies. This is really a fine distinction that most folks don't get. In a conversation, you're free, especially a conversation where you're going to sell a meeting, you're always free to sell the meeting. And the less obvious it is what you're doing, you know, the less obvious that thing is, the easier it is to sell the meeting. It's harder to sell meetings within categories, especially if you expose the category, because then all you ever get is we're set. Because you're insulting that person and saying, you had no idea that this category was important. I'm saying it is important. Therefore, you weren't doing your job. And you were waiting for a salesperson to call and tell you how to do your job. And any person worth their salt says, well, we're set. And they accomplish their first order goal, which is getting off this conversation with their self-image intact. So there's actually a big advantage in category creation or category pioneering, interestingly, within the conversation, but you because you're not tempted to put yourself in a category where you get bounced out with the we're set objection, which by the way, is an unanswerable objection. Think about it. Somebody says we're set, what are you going to say? No, you're not. Right. It's it, it doesn't make sense, right? You immediately migrate to the third grade playground. My daddy's stronger than your daddy. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. That is not a good place to be in sales, right? Especially on a cold call. So if, the irony, by the way, this is a little aside, is even if you're in a category, when you cold call, you must stay out of the category and your marketing department will screw you up by coming in and telling you to jump into the category and say what you do. And if you say what you do, you'll get we're set and you can't answer it. This is actual simple math, right? It's like, uh, there are things you shouldn't do. And, you know, they call it waving a red flag in front of a colorblind bull, but the bull's still going to run you over and those, those horns aren't so great. So this is, you know, it's just kind of funny. We just cut through it by talking to people and, and we buy our own technology at cost. So we have a huge economic advantage in doing it. I will admit we do have gross margins that are, you know, above some number as we should. And that's what we do. That's how we did. We did not attempt to to pretend there was a category where there wasn't one and differentiate ourselves in that category. So we didn't join the dialer category. Yeah. And we didn't join the appointment center category. We're actually a hybrid. Connect and Sell, right at this moment, has 611 people navigating phone calls on behalf of sales reps who should not navigate phone calls. Because why we pay somebody to do telephone work, it's like, you are such a talented talker, listener, and problem solving. I think I'll pay you so that 95% of your time you spend pushing buttons on a telephone and going nowhere. That makes no sense economically, and it's not fun. So this is this is fun. Push a button, talk to somebody, and the economics are labor displacement. Move all of that navigation of phone calls and talking to gatekeepers and going to voicemail into a different labor pool that loves it and does it well. Empower them with technology, but the technology on the surface, that's all the user can experience is the technology. Make sure that the user doesn't have to do anything. I mean, literally, I have people on my team today have had 1,500 dials done for them on my team. And they did no work other than to push a button, wait three or four minutes, and talk to somebody when it goes bloop in their ear. 
What do you think is one of or some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in your 11-year journey of building, you know, kind of this categoryless or hybrid category company? One is that you got to be patient because the category is going to form. Um, you know, the play bigger guys who are really smart talk about category creation. There's a difference between category creation and category enforcing. You can't actually force a category to come into being, but you mm -hmm. can recognize when it does. This one has finally. And the reason that we can tell it has is that we have some, some certain competitors who play a small version of this, I'll call it, which is fine. And then we also have got some folks who are going after, I'll call it the highly automated version, which is fine. And some of them are getting some attention from investors who are paying big valuations for shiny new objects. And that's a pretty good sign that the category is, I'll call it spinning up. Yep. Right? So you've got to be patient and wait. And the second thing is, you got to recognize that when you're solving a real problem, you, it's going to take years. It takes years to understand the deep nature of any problem. So as an example, at Connect and Sell, we initially thought, hey, we're a utility. You push a button, you talk to somebody. What could go wrong? Well, who's the you and are they any good? What are they going to say? Are they going to say it in a way that's effective? And are they going to say it to people that they want to be effective with? Oh, and by the way, if it's going faster, are they going to take care of their lists or are they just going to let them get beat up? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes along with going fast. Just like you invent the automobile. Well, okay, we had a pretty good infrastructure for horses, although a little excess cleanup in the streets was required. People tend to forget that. Boston didn't used to smell so good, nor did New York, actually, back in the day. Um, they're kind of dark too with all those telephone lines. But anyway, you know, when you when you invent something new, you have to be prepared to provide the infrastructure that later others will provide. You don't have the alternative of waiting for partners to do anything because they're attracted to the category, not to the not to the problem, and not to onesie twosie stuff. So. One of the things that I didn't learn this per se, it was reinforced strongly. Now you got to get it. I'm 67 years old. I've been building businesses for 42 years. So while I do learn things, kind of the basics at some point, you, you, you know, you kind of get right, but it's doing it. That's hard. I mean, being patient, that's easy to say, be patient. There's nothing to it. Can you be patient and have massive urgency at the same time? Because that's what you got to do. You have to have this huge urgency around helping customers, solving the problem, learning, and you have to be patient for something around something you can't really control, which is when's the damn category going to spin up? So that's kind of it. So we've, uh, what have we done? We help people with their data. We never wanted to do that. We got the world's best research team around contact data. And if they've got Zoom info or we have a thing with Apollo now where we can help them or whatever, if they need lists, help, we'll tend to provide it. We won't eat cost of goods to do it, but we'll eat labor to do it. And we do it happily. We help people with their messaging. I've had messaging workshops I've conducted. One of them, CEO of a company down in Austin, he didn't want to attend the messaging workshop. I'm not going to go. That's all, all, my people should do that. Rawr, rawr, rawr. And I said, great. 
but I'm not going to conduct a workshop. So then it's going to be kind of interesting. You know, okay. And he shows up at the end. I asked him, what do you think? He said, I just booked a plane ticket to come buy you dinner in Reno tonight. So we do that. What did we charge for that messaging workshop? Zero. Because it's part of the infrastructure. If you're going to deliver conversations, what well, you got to have a message and it has to be psychologically oriented, not marketing value oriented, which is a dead loss in the world of the cold call. So then we figured out after about six years, my tenure, oh, we better start teaching people how to hold great conversations. So we came up with this thing called flight school and it's high pressure. That is, you're talking to real prospects and it's training where you make money. You actually make money during the training because you're talking to prospects, puts your voice under pressure. And you can be precision coached through the first seven seconds of the conversation for two hours. So you actually learn from the top, so to speak, just like any other performance, you know, what goes before conditions, what comes after. So if your first seven seconds aren't mastered, yeah, I don't really care what a great closer you are. You're not going to get there, right? So we take folks through four sessions of Blitz and Coach with an expert instructor, psychologically oriented messaging, Precision coaching, only one thing is coached, first failure point. Nothing else is ever coached. Turn people into the top 5% in the world of cold callers makes our system better. What do we charge for that? Roughly the same amount we would charge for the dials. Wow. I think the first, I mean, the first 10 seconds of any cold call are the most important, right? I think you just said seven, but but seven. for me, I, yeah, so seven, seven, 10, whatever it I, is. <laughs> I'm only saying seven because Chris Voss told, taught me that. Oh, then it's seven. Then it's definitely yeah, seven. It's yeah. seven. I mean, I really, I literally, I asked Chris one night at dinner when I was lucky enough to get a hold of him. And we had a couple drinks on ourselves. And I, I asked him, how long do we have to get trust in a cold call? And he says, seven seconds, just like that. And I did not spill my drink. I'm very proud. And I said, so really, because our research says eight seconds. And he said, your research is wrong. It's seven seconds. I said, okay, so what do we have to do in those seven seconds? He said, oh, that's easy. All we have to do is show the other person we see the world through their eyes. And then we have to demonstrate to them we're competent to solve a problem they have right now. And I said, wasn't the problem they have right now me? And he said, bingo. I said, got it. (laughs) So so the, the beauty of cold calling, which most people don't get, is if your goal is trust, you succeed 100% of the time. If your goal is a meeting, you'll succeed some other amount of the time. If you pave your market with trust, you seal it against all competitors because when a competitor tries to get somebody to not trust you, but that somebody already trusts you, that competitor will not be trusted. So you basically create this landmine situation sincerely because you really are worth trusting. You did the right thing. And then you don't blow it. Because I asked him that. How long will somebody trust you if you do it right? He said, oh, forever. Until you blow it. Like, pretty simple. So that's why, you know, that's why my whole thing is I've got a podcast on it and all that called Market Dominance. It's not like, I'm not saying flex your muscles and dominate a market. I'm saying the only safe position in business is a dominant position in one market, small or big. Otherwise, you're working for the number one. Whoever's dominant. They can decide if you live or die. Yeah. So you're working for them. Well, they're your competitor and you're working for your competitor. That's kind of dumb. 
So choose a market that you can dominate, but how to dominate? Well, it's a speed question and you don't have to have a product, just dominate it by paving the market with trust and then harvest it over the three years that it takes for folks to kind of come around to thinking maybe they want to buy your thing. I'm really curious about your messaging workshops and, and flight schools because in my experience, frankly, I'm going to indict myself, right? Because marketers ruin everything. And as a CMO, I've been ruining things for many years. When you work with executives, including recalcitrant executives that don't want to go, don't want to take part, don't think think maybe it's beneath them to really invest the time to learn, what are some of the tips and tricks that you kind of like, how do you get their mind right? How do you get them to open up? How do you get them to trust you to then trust the process to move forward with you know more effective cold calling? And that's a great question. I love that. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it is the key. The key is to get the senior executives to understand that what they've been told about how calling works is wrong. Not that I would say it's wrong, but it just happens that it's wrong, right? The traditions of cold calling are to go on a path through value. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is value can only be expressed by positioning yourself in a category and then differentiating yourselves from others in the category, which in a cold call will always get you shut down. So it's like one of those things that sounds great, but hey, it sounds great if you want to say, say you're single and you want to get married, right? Well, if you just walk into a bar and pick somebody up and say, want to marry me, that's not going to work either. It's a, it's a very important thing to say at some point in the process, just not then, right? So marketing is super important because at some point we have to talk to, the, to audiences bigger than one person. But when we're cold calling, we're talking to an audience of one person in a psychologically fraught situation where we ambushed them. And that's actually the word I use to get senior executives on board. As I said, look, this is an ambush call, pure and simple. The psychology is we're, we're scaring that other person. Why? Because we're an invisible stranger and they made a mistake. They just made a mistake. They walked into the path of an invisible stranger. In the environment of evolution, that's the worst thing in the world to do. Lions and tigers and bears and snakes and spiders and falling out of trees is nothing compared to those people who live across the river, paint their faces the wrong way. We're civilized. We paint our faces horizontally. They are total barbarians. They paint their faces vertically. And by the way, anybody who understands NFL football gets this, right? So, I mean, tribalism is deep and it's not that we dislike them. We're afraid of them. Well, when we call somebody, we are that invisible stranger. And it sounds really bad. It turns out it's a great power position because we're now the problem and we can choose to relieve ourselves of the, you know, them of the problem. That's the kind of thing I tell the senior executives so that they get out of this mindset of, I don't like being cold called myself. Therefore, that, by the way, is narcissism. In fact, it's narcissism on the spectrum, I'll call it, where you think everybody's a copy of you. Many mm -hmm. senior executives have got this problem. They go, well, I don't like it, so we won't do it. Like, uh, let's look at the facts. <laughs> I've got the facts from, let's just go back a little ways, 60 million dials and 3 million conversations with people just like you, except they're not you because you'd never would have answered the phone. Here's the numbers, right? Here's the numbers. Here's the dominance play that you can put in place. 
But also here's the surprising psychology. And I think that's the key is the fact that it's surprising and intriguing. It's like, oh, and it's like, oh, that's different. And it causes them to start to listen. And I think it's also just kind of appealing to some people that it's simplifying. You don't need to do an hour or 15 minutes or two minutes of research on somebody before putting them in a list because your goal is to build trust. And all you need to know is they're a human being. That's it. Why did you put them in the list? Because you think you should have a meeting with them. Well, do you still think you should have the meeting with them after they answer the phone? I mean, nothing changed. So go for the meeting, right? But first, first, go for trust. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what gets folks over that hump. They don't all get there. Some of them, they'll stay in this place of like, well, I don't like it when people call me and say, well, you know, okay. You know, I don't like it when I have to get on an airplane with other people, but I still do it. Yeah, earning time, earning intrigue, you know, building and creating that trust. That's something I train SDRs here on is that, you know, familiarity in sales isn't the same thing as familiarity outside of sales. You don't have to be friends with your prospects. You don't have to build a friendship. It's about making the prospect feel safe with you, right? I mean, it's (laughs) making them trust you is about making them feel safe. So therefore, in sales, building familiarity is that, you know, the first seven seconds that you have to do just that. And, and yeah, so I, what you're saying here is it's, it's striking a nerve. It's, it's pretty brilliant stuff. I'm, I'm totally on board. <laughs> well, thank you. We came by it the hard way. We hit it, you know, we're now, we're now like 700 million dials into this thing. Yeah. And we got a lot of data and, we, and we're victims ourselves because we use it. We talk to 85,000 VPs of sales a year. And we have a little team. That's just a little tiny team. And it's like 10 people. It's, you can learn a lot by by repeatedly doing something badly and then <laughs> having to improve it. That's pretty funny. But it is interesting. What you say is fascinating. I think most people think sales has got all this complexity, right? It doesn't. It only has two pieces that you have to accomplish, two things you have to do. One, you've got to, to help somebody see that you have something to offer, that you're an expert. Well, by the very nature of B2B sales, if you're the seller, you're the expert because you're a specialist. So specialists are always experts compared to generalists with regard to that topic. Therefore, we're good, right? <laughs> that you don't have to do very much, but you do have to do that. And Orrin Claff teaches something I think is very beautiful called a flash roll that helps somebody accept you as an expert. And what you do is you very, this is, you can't do it in a cold call, but in a discovery call, you can quickly and casually go through some things, some facts or whatever, in a way that only an expert would do, not because of the content, but because you make it sound so routine. And in his book, um, uh, Flip the Script, he describes doing this when you're buying a mountain bike. And it's just so brilliant. It's like flash roll. Okay. So you do status alignment. Then you do flash roll. This is all in discovery. But it's it's where sales is really taking place. Getting somebody to a meeting is straightforward. It's like, are you curious enough to attend a meeting about something that could be important? It's potentially relevant. I sound confident about it. And I insist you attend the meeting for your own good. As my friend Scott Webb says, 
my mindset, and he's the chief sales officer, chief growth officer of Hub International, says my mindset when I cold call, and he he converts it 100%, by the way. He actually converts it 100%. I mean, for real, I've got the facts. It's measured. He says, my mindset is this person's about to walk in front of a speeding bus. I'm going to reach out and hit them hard in the middle of the chest to stop them. They may not like it, but they will live. Interesting analogy. It's it's uh, riveting, <laughs> <laughs> especially because I've done it once in the real world with an actual bus and an actual person. Wow. And I didn't care whether it hurt him or not. He was my business partner. It was a foggy day. And the bus was going pretty fast. And he was really going to step in front of the bus because he was preoccupied after a very bad meeting that we just had. And I did reflex. I didn't even see the bus. I don't know what I did, but I hit him really hard in the middle of the chest and stopped him. So when Scott told me this, I, I made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, actually. But that's his mindset. And you will take that meeting. And the ultimate close in the modern world for a meeting is so simple, and most people won't do it. So we're taught, get it on the calendar, make them commit, force them to, it's like, look, you haven't even met this person. You just ambushed them. And guess what? If you send them a calendar invitation after a verbal yes for any date in the future, you can move it around because it goes on their calendar. That is the calendar that they used to write in is not the same as in terms of accessibility as the calendar that they're working from now in computer world. And so all you have to do is get a verbal yes. Well, why will they give you a yes? For a simple reason. Their goal at the end of the call is the same as their goal at the beginning of the call. To get off this call, they made the mistake of answering with their self-image intact. Simple trade. So Cheryl Turner, who works in my team, directly for me, she's kind of a special, magical person. I've heard her do this one. CEO of a company says to her, Cheryl, I'm standing in a rainstorm. It's cold. I'm putting gas in my car. Of course, I don't have my calendar available. She says, fantastic. Tell you what, I'm a morning person. I'll shoot you something for next Thursday. We'll move it around if we have to. What's he going to say? No, I want to stand here in the rainstorm and fight you. So he says, yes. And then being a CEO, he shows up. Because by the way, that's what CEOs do. Yeah. Quick on her feet, she is. That's Cheryl. Uh, well practiced, yeah. Quick on her feet. Interestingly, she has that one wired up. So I've heard it do that with a guy who was in his pool. Hey, I'm floating the pool here with a couple of buddies drinking a beer. Fantastic. Tell you what, oh, I'm great. a person. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pattern interrupt, right? Fantastic is a pattern interrupt. Yes, it's a, it's a uh, Jeb Blunt ledge. It's my ledge. Yeah. Cheryl actually got that, that ledge. I think she might have swiped it off of me, but I happily share it with her. <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact is you have to first sincerely believe in the potential value of this meeting for this human being mm -hmm. in the case where you never do business together. And this is where I think SDRs and AEs even, experienced AEs, fail. They think the meeting is a, a means to their end. It's, a, it's on the path to a commission. And that's deadly. You can't think like that. You can't feel like that. You've got, in fact, if you're an SDR, your business is selling meetings. Yeah. To whom? Anyone on the list who will take one. Why? Because otherwise you shouldn't have put them on the list. 
And if you don't set a meeting with everybody in the list who will take a meeting, you provide zero feedback to marketing with regard to making the list. So you're making your marketing team fly blind with regard to the TAM, which is not a good idea. Ever. Ever. But it's a standard idea. It's always practiced. Let's qualify them a little bit. What does that mean? Uh, we don't think they should have been on the list. Well, why'd you put them on the list? That Wait is the beauty of outbound. I mean, the, the beauty of outbound and direct response is, and, and cold calling in general is that you have that choice. They can make the list or not to make, make the list. And everything can start with that very clean slate. Yeah. And the feedback loop is, is clean. And the open loop stuff is, frankly, like, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say in all my time of building systems, and I've been building systems for a long time, I get a great idea. Let's build an open loop system with no feedback. That doesn't make any sense. But people do it all the time in sales. It's like, what are you going to do? Well, let's see, if I were running a factory and I have parts coming in and I'm going to process them with machines and the parts suck, I'm going to go back to the vendor, the supplier of the parts, and I'm going to get that fixed. But in sales, we do it the other way. The parts are variable. And we go, why don't you fix them up on the fly? Yeah. Why don't you mess with them? You take it over there. There's a grinder over there. Do a little grinding. Why don't you take this one and hit it with a hammer and see if it fits? Oh, yeah. And then you just send them down. So let's see. Quality, unknown. Cycle time, unknown. Throughput, unknown. The three things we need to do to know to run any process we don't know. And then we go, I wonder why we're all missing quota and stuff like that. Interesting that. to bring kind of like the uh, factory floor and engineering problem forward into sales. I think a lot of sales leaders that think about the craft in, in those more problem solve kind of terms rarely seem to get distracted or rarely seem to get kind of like off path with things that don't matter. Yeah. what's I mean, what we discovered about factories, we had to discover because there's, I'll call them stiff. They're stiff problems, right? You can't pretend that a machine did something that it didn't do. Right. Shigeo Shingo taught us this a long time ago. So basically, pay attention to the burrs. If you know, if there's burrs on the part coming out, you know, little pieces of sharp metal, you have a problem inside that machine. You've got to fix. Don't take the file to the burrs. Fix the machine. Right. And these are the insights that led to the manufacturing revolution that we've all, you know, feasted on. All, all the stuff that's in our backgrounds and, you know, that cruise ship in my background. Try making one of those in a reasonable period of time 100 years ago. Yeah. Right. And then try repeating it over. And it's really, really hard. And right? so that was a hard problem because it's a stiff problem. Sales is not a stiff problem. Sales is, is more like, you know, dance in front of an audience that doesn't know what good dance looks like. It's like you can get away with a lot yeah. in sales. And so the slop in sales mm -hmm. in which you can just say, well, but look, the number came out. So you take you know, slop plus luck equals failure to improve process. There's a lot of slop in sales. And then there's a lot of worshiping of luck. Like, well, we do it in our company. Some of you will get a deal. It's like, whoa, everybody goes crazy. Uh, wasn't the process supposed to produce that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> What's so, I mean, I get it. It's nice and all, but it's not like, what is it about sales? Like, can you imagine some, imagine this. 
somebody's writing some code and they actually get the algorithm to work as intended. Does everybody go crazy in the company and start saying, oh, Mary, she's like, what an incredible thing. High five, ring the gong, man. She wrote that code that actually worked. Yeah, that's what engineers do. That's kind of the thing, you know, it's how they work, right? So I think we're, we're very primitive in the development of sales culture to be inside the business rather than outside the business. By that, I mean, we treat sales by default as an externality. We, we assign a territory. Why anymore we do this is entirely beyond me. I have no, like, what, you can't talk to somebody who's not next door to you now? Alexander Graham Bell fixed that problem a long, long time ago. And human voice is pretty effective, 20,000 bits a second right into the midbrain, you know? Whoa. And now we got all screen sharing and Zoom info and blah, or Zoom video and blah, blah, blah. But we assign a territory, we put a rep in the territory and say it's your business. So now you're outside the company. We actually said, we say it's your business. How do we know? We pay you for succeeding in it. That's how we can tell it's your business. And then uh, if it doesn't work out, we're going to take the business away from you and give it to somebody else. And in the meantime, to make you better, we'll tell you war stories about how great we were when we had our own territory. Boy, oh boy, if that isn't a sales floor description laid bare, I don't know what is. It's funny, salespeople would actually do well to know who W. Edwards Deming is, wouldn't they? Everybody should read Out of the Crisis. Most people don't. It was during Deming's grouchy period. Still, I mean, Deming and Goldratt nailed it. Jeff Moore told us why we have to do it in innovation, which is almost all of sales now in the innovation economy. So if you really want to grasp everything about sales, right, in a a, like what you really need to know, you read Deming, so you understand people's motivations for why they do stuff. People work for pride of workmanship. They do not work for money. That's important. And quality isn't what you think it is. Right. (laughs) Right. So you're going to have inevitable variability of process outcomes. You need to understand and characterize that variability before you attempt to manage that variability. And in sales, we try to manage the variability without characterizing and understanding it. Bad idea, right? Goldratt basically said something that nobody likes, which is sales, like everything else, it's a process. Process, a process always has exactly one bottleneck, one constraint. And nobody likes that because it pulls the rug out from the standard organizational politics, which is invest in me, invest in me. I'm here. I must be important. But rationally, you only invest in the constraint. So having found the constraint, which is where inventory builds up on one side and you're starved or episodic on the other side, what one should do is go, let's invest in the constraint. First thing we do, understand it, characterize it. What is its quality? What's its cycle time? What's its throughput? Okay. Now, once we know that, we can ask ourselves, in order to address the constraint, do we improve the throughput, keeping quality constant and cycle time at least acceptable of this unit, or do we make more units? It's called hire more salespeople, right? You do one or the other, but you got to know what you're up against. And meanwhile, people go, well, maybe it's the market. Let's go do this. Well, maybe it's the product. Let's go do this. It's like, that's nutty. 
there's only one constraint. By the way, in modern businesses and B2B, that constraint's always in the same place. It's at the top of your funnel. Your flow rate of meetings with relevant people is sub what is needed to support the business plan. I know AKA pipeline coverage. It's it. It's it. What's your flow rate? What's the throughput? What is the unit of production? What's the input? This is easy, easy stuff. And go, but Goldratt tells us something we don't like. He says, all, all y'all keep working as you are. We're only going to investigate and invest in this one part of the process. Nobody likes it because politically it doesn't sound great, right? But it is necessary, right? And then Jeff Moore told us something else, which is people hate your stuff. It makes them sick. You think it's great. They find it repulsive because it's new. So you're going to have to cross the chasm. And don't pretend you're not going to have to cross the chasm. And by the way, the chasm is where you make no money. You go from making some money and pre-chasm customers, which are not customers at all, and then you got to go into the period of making no money. So your plan has to include a part where you make no money. <laughs> and who wants to hear that? We're the exception. Our product is so so incredible, so intuitive. I bet I could come up with adjectives for it all day. Maybe I'll go to the thesaurus and I'll find some more adjectives. And then that will convince me that there'll be no chasm for us, even though there's been a chasm for every single other innovation in the history of innovation, including the Clovis spear point 22,000 years ago. I love that. You know, when I think about like crossing the chasm though, it's also interesting if you kind of juxtapose that or cross it with what you were saying earlier around this idea that building trust and safety is categoryless. What I heard, you know, laid bare was can I sell authenticity and transfer confidence ultimately at the end of the day to somebody I don't know that I've just ambushed? To get them to believe that the reason I'm calling actually can help them just as much as I believe it. Yeah, that's the number one. That's the first step. And if you can't do that, you're stuck. And you're doing it actually on the other side of the chasm. This is what's really interesting. When you look at where cold calling works extraordinarily effectively, it's in two areas. One is market exploration to see if you should build a product. Sadly, most folks build a product first and then go to how to sell it. This is not the smartest way to do it. The really smart way to do it is go sell the product. As my old friend Venkat Mohan, when he became a venture capitalist, told me once, he said, look, Chris, I will not invest in a product where I haven't sold the paper product to the hypothetical market. Real people. I get them to buy it. What do they have to buy first? The meeting. Okay, so cold calling is a great way to get meetings with targets. So go make yourself a hypothetical market. Make it small. So a market of 10,000 is pretty good. I like this as a rule of thumb. Choose a market of 10,000, roughly speaking, and go have 100 conversations. If you can set five of those 100 conversations as meetings on the spot, you are probably good to go. Now go hold those meetings. So we're into, with our technology, that's two people one day. And so now you're one day into it. That's all you spent is one day. For those hundred conversations, they want to be kind of lazy. Take two days, take a break, you know, have lunch or something. So whiskey in the evening is good after a day like this. So do that. So then you got to hold some of those meetings. 
So what do you want to know in the meetings? Well, first of all, you have to establish that you can actually get them to confess. So you've got to be really good at the confessional, the discovery meeting. And then you got to get them to confess that either it does or does not, your thing, your product, either does or does not resonate along one of three dimensions. There's an economic dimension, cost, risk, time. There's an emotional dimension, almost always frustration. And there's a strategy dimension. Where are they trying to go and can you help them get there? If they don't resonate on any of those, do not build that product. (laughs) So now we're mm, five meetings, get it done in two weeks. We have a lot of other work we can do. So we're two weeks from, what a great idea. I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration of whatever it is you fix. And the reason I reached out to you today is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Do you happen to have your calendar available? That's how you set the meetings. There's no IP around this. That's why I share it freely. The voice? Oh, yeah. You know, we practice the voice, right? So two calibrated reps, one day, set the meetings, if above threshold, hold the meetings. If below threshold, tune the message. If tuning the message doesn't work on three iterations, tune the list. Now you have a fail-safe way of going to market without investing in building a product. This could save people some pain. <laughs> right? A lot of time and money right there. So that it's cold calling is good for that. And the other thing cold calling is good for is now I want to cross the chasm. So I've done my normal pre-chasm work, right? I found a visionary who's seeking competitive advantage, will overpay me for the technology, blah, 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 blah. Jeff lays it out very clearly. But now I've identified, ooh, somebody's got a broken mission-critical business process, and they're organized within a vertical or some cool thing like that. Okay, that's my new list. Now I have a product. I actually have something that works because my pre-chasm work forced me to make it work. I don't have the luxury of disappointing my visionary who overpaid me. So I have one customer and maybe some tire kicker weirdos earlier than that. And then we call them tech enthusiasts. And now I've got to go and make another list. And I repeat the process precisely yeah, with the same message. And I have the meetings and the meetings now flow into whatever I'm going to do next. In our case, what we do next is, okay, use it for a day for free and feel what it's like to go fast. There's something like that that will be your next step. I don't know what it'll be. Each product's different in that regard. And then it starts to diverge. Yeah. It starts to get, I'll call it post-discovery. The situation gets filigreed. Pre-discovery, it's linear. There is no interesting variety up to and through discovery. It's just humans. You have a scared buyer, you're, you're a specialist, they're a generalist, they're risking their career. If you can give, take one step past discovery, you have evidence you should continue in this business. So it's psychological. I mean, it's, it's something happens in your voice, even when you, um, you know, when you do that mock scenario where you're the, pro, or you're the SDR talking to the prospect. And I want to know more about that. So how do you do that from a craft perspective? Is it in the tone, the pacing? <laughs> What's the craft behind in front of the psychology, right? Behind what the SDR needs to be doing in those first seven seconds. I love this. This is my favorite topic. (laughs) I'm a singer. So I, I play piano badly and I probably sing badly too, but Helen thinks it's pretty good. 
So you only need, this is one of the most important things. You need an audience. You need to have that feel for your audience, which means you need to practice live. You have to practice live. That's why we do flight school. You have to put your voice under pressure before you find out what your voice is like under pressure. Well, it's kind of like it's it's obvious, but not obvious, right? But right before that, you need to learn the why behind the tonality, the, the, the moment by moment by moment. So for instance, when I open a cold call and the way we teach it, and there's a there's probably you know 50 million ways to do this. It's irrelevant that there's 50 million. All you need one learnable way, and then you I don't know. I don't know why people want it. It's like there's a good way to hit a golf ball. If you have, you know, both legs and both hands, right? If you only have one arm, well, it's a different way. But for most of us, there's a a way to grip the club that has a chance of releasing the club head to generate the speed that's needed to cause a golf ball to compress against the face of the club and do what it's supposed to do, which is spin, pull air around it and fly like a little wing. It's well understood. (laughs) It's not like it's a, oh my God, I got to invent what? I want to reinvent how to hold the golf club. It's not a good idea when you're learning to play golf. Somebody's got this figured out. You put your hands in your club like this. So this is first, you got to accept that there's a way of doing things that might work. And then the question is, well, what are the pieces? So the first piece you have to learn is throwing yourself under the bus. You have to know why you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it because you've been taught your whole life not to be the problem. When you were a little kid, before you could speak, you were told hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times not to be the problem. So now you're an adult. So you have a problem, which is you need to be the problem, right? My analogy, this is like being a surgeon. You don't have to work to faint at the sight of blood. You just have to be human. But if you're a surgeon who faints at the sight of blood, still, you can't be a surgeon. It's really hard. because doing At least I'm my surgeon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe your surgeon, but not mine. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's really it's funny though, isn't it? We we treat this like it's okay to shy away from it. You just have to address it straight on, which is you are doing something that's fundamentally uncomfortable for you because you know in your gut you're scaring this other person and you will be exiled from the village for scaring them, because that's what we don't do in the village, and therefore you need to practice overcoming that. I have an analogy to this. So I've taught a lot of rock climbing in my life. And all humans who have like brain stems are afraid of heights. I challenge anybody to tell me they're not. I'll take them some places where we will test that. (laughs) Oh, I'm not afraid of heights. Really? Let's do this. And we'll be up, say, 1,100 feet off the ground on a seventh inch wide ledge where you can't fall off and let's just go like this across facing outward you'll be afraid of heights trust me i am and i know how to do that kind of crap so how do you learn to climb the first thing you have to learn is to trust the rope how do you learn to trust the rope well go up three feet and step off and feel the rope catch you because nobody's afraid of three feet and if they are go up two feet how often should you do it until it gets boring it's exactly the same thing. So we need to learn to deal with our inherent reluctance to ambush somebody and to be the invisible stranger. How do we learn it? We practice it in the real world. And what's the practice? Well, we learn the words. The words are simple. 
It's like, here, here they go. Here's the words. I know I'm an interruption. Why do I hammer the word no? Because I'm saying to the other person, I see the world through your eyes unequivocally. I am not hedging. I'm not trying to be like better than I am. I know I'm the, I get it. I am the problem. I, I would never encourage somebody to say this. I realize I'm interrupting your day. You're not saying anything about yourself. So what a big deal, right? It's like saying, you know, I realize the light's not so good in here, but maybe I'll do something about it. No, we can't do anything about this. We are a bad thing. By owning up to being a bad thing, we immediately take the first step of trust. Tactical empathy. I see the world through your eyes unequivocally with a firm, clear, flat voice. I know I'm an interruption. It's very unsafe to use the word I because it brings an ego, but it's pretty good if the next thing you do is throw that ego under the bus. What a relief. They're under the bus. I wanted you dead when I realized that I answered the phone and you just did it for me. Thank you. And then this is the hard part. But you've got to show them, demonstrate that you're competent to solve a problem they have right now. Well, you are the problem. So, you, and you know what they're trying to do. They're trying to get off this call with their self-image intact. So it's actually kind of easy, except how do you go from that hard, flat, throw yourself under the bus voice to a playful and curious voice that says, come along with me to where the problem will be solved. So you change your voice. This requires practice. And under pressure, it's harder. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? Can you put that little double up, double chuckle in there? Can you? If you can, you'll get a little chuckle from the other side, inwardly or outwardly, and a what? Or an okay? Or yeah, you got 15 seconds, you get something. You're not looking for permission. Who needs permission? Right? You're looking, however, for an agreement built on trust that you will use the 27 seconds and then leave them alone. That's the agreement. And it's a promise. And so the best thing in the world you can do when you've just met somebody is make a promise and keep a promise before you part. So you've just made a promise. It's a funny promise, right? And by the way, it's not may I have 27 seconds. You're not asking for it. You're asking a question of fact, which you know the answer to. <laughs> of course. You're going to fight me for 30 seconds over the 27 seconds? Why? <laughs> And you have a purpose to tell you why I called. That's it. How do you learn to say those two things in a voice that works? First, you have to sincerely believe that it's good for them. And then you need to be taught the voice. And then you need to practice under pressure. And that's what flight school is. The first two hours of flight school, you do the whole thing, all five sentences. Woo! Five sentences. (laughs) <laughs> and you try to get the meeting, but we only coach the first seven seconds repeatedly. I love Our, this answer. <laughs> by the way, I really love that that question, though. Can I have whatever number of seconds, 27, maybe shorter, maybe slightly longer, I don't know. But either way, the, because I want to tell you why I'm calling is actually invoking the curiosity in that brain of the prospect right then and there. Exactly. And the the emotional path, you've nailed it. The emotional path you want to take them on is from fear, their fear, not yours, to trust, to curiosity, not value, to commitment, and eventually to action. So the action is, 
later, right? That's come to the discovery meeting. The commitment is what you're looking for as the end state. And curiosity is the next step. So the first step toward curiosity is to offer and answer the question that's on the mind, which is, why did you call me? Right. I'm going to tell you why I called. I'm not going to pitch you on my product. I'm not. I'm probably not going to try to force a meeting, except for a funny thing. When I tell you why I called, and I'll give you the connect and sell version, but everybody plugs in a different part. So I would say, you say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, right? First, I, I thank you. I thank you for the, your attention, right? It's very brief, right? So I say, thanks, Eric. And then I repeat your name because this is a good idea. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. People love the sound of their name. People do. They respond to it, right? In an airport, you can hear your name among all that noise. I just had it happen to me the other day. It's so Actually, crazy. I had it happen to her. Ellen Fanucci, please return to security. It's like, holy moly. <laughs> wasn't a very loud airport. It was Tucson. But uh, anyway, I say, thanks, Eric. Eric, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration that keeps your best sales reps from being effective on the phone or even using the phone at all. And the reason I reached out to you to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Do you happen to have your calendar available? And notice that voice at the end, it's the same playful, curious voice. It's a curiosity question. I'm not trying to get you to do something. I'm curious about whether you happen to have your calendar available. I want you to be curious about three things. One is, why would somebody say they believe something? That's weird. I believe, and it's a very big hammer on why, and then you throw the ego away immediately with, with we. I believe we've discovered, notice it's soft in the middle. I believe we've discovered a breakthrough. The hammer's on breakthrough. The curiosity around we is huge. Who is we? There's a magazine called Us. It's called Us because they found out that people will buy a magazine called Us because they're curious about what's in it. Yes. That's there are, there are people in America, you won't believe this, actually, especially in Boston, you won't believe this. I, I hesitate to say it. But there are people in the United States of America who pay a great deal of attention to the goings-on of the British royal family. Yeah. Even though in the year 1776 or thereabouts, we sort of eh, kind of cut those ties. They, you know, It's like, yeah, no more, right? And yet here we are. 246 years later, roughly, I might have gotten that wrong. Fascinated. Why? Because they're kind of mysterious. They live in palaces. They do things we don't do. They hang out with people we're not so sure about. You know, they live a different kind of life. I think people are fascinated in other people's fascination with them, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's second order and third order. I'm fascinated by their fascination in them. It's like zoo animals. Whoa. And I watched Downton Abbey. So, Look out. So we is fundamentally mysterious and intriguing. Discovered actually is the key word. Discovered says we found something so we were lucky. We are lucky. And lucky people are okay to hang out with, but people who say they're great are not. So if you say, I believe we have helped companies like X, Y, and Z to, and then you went from there, you're claiming you're great. Well, if you're claiming you're great, you're on the third grade playground. My daddy's stronger than your daddy. And you will immediately get psychological reactants. You will get, no, he's not. No, you're not. 
you do not want to be on the third grade playground in a cold call. You will lose. It's like trying to bridle a horse when you're seven years old and alone. They're bigger than you are. They can run faster and they kick. So don't do it. Don't go on the third grade playground by claiming anything other than you're lucky. And it turns out people being lucky is a matter of curiosity. I believe we've discovered a breakthrough and breakthrough has two wonderful qualities to it. One, it's intriguing, like really? And the other is it's a hero and the hero's journey story. Now we can have the breakthrough be an actor. The actor is going to do something. What's it going to do? Oh, hero's journey. Slay three-headed dragon, bring back the gold. What are the heads? Economic, emotional, strategic. So my breakthrough goes and, you know, slays three-headed dragons. Interested? That's kind of what you're saying is interested in learning more about my breakthrough. I'd like to share my breakthrough with you. And that's the key word that comes after. By the way, at the point, and you can put me on the clock on this. I don't have a clock here. I threw my phone over there because, you know, it's a podcast. But if I were to put this on the clock, my guess is it's between 17 and 19 seconds. So I'll do it again. I, first, The first part is where it takes a little bit of time because I say your name twice, right? So I say, thanks, Eric. Eric, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration that keeps your best sales reps from being effective on the phone or even using the phone at all. And the reason I reached out to you is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. Do you happen to have your calendar available? Now, when I said share this breakthrough with you, I was done. I told you why I called. The reason I reached out to you is to get 15 minutes on your calendar to share this breakthrough with you. My promise has been kept at 17 seconds. So I got a little extra time. So I'm going to ask you a curiosity question. Do you happen to have your calendar available? Silence. Now I'm good. What are you going to say? Lots of different things. Who knows? What's this about? Tell me more. Eric, you know, we've learned the hard way that an ambush conversation like this isn't a fair setting to talk about something that's important. You know, I'm a morning person. How's your Thursday? I love that. Yeah. So you throw the conversation under the bus as a category. Right. Right. Not a good place to talk about an important thing. You weren't waiting for me to call, talk about important stuff, were you? Were you? I don't think so. Let's but now be you could be. <laughs> so it's it's fascinating that, you know, so the answer, <laughs> the answer to the question of how do you get folks to do this is little, little, little bit at the time. Yeah. With the experience of the big surprise, which is when you get the first two sentences right, mm-hmm. people chuckle and stay on with you and your life is better. And yeah, when you yeah. do it with Connect and Sell, you can now do that. As an SDR, my SDRs do this 50 times a day. They have 50 conversations a day with decision makers. And it's fun. It's just fun. I mean, what's it's more fun talking to people, right? But talking to people when you know how to do it, when you're an expert, is really fun. It's like, I don't know, I go to the range and I hit golf balls. I think it's fun. Well, I'm pretty darn good at it. That's why Deming told us this. We work for pride of workmanship. Her words right there. Wow, Chris, this has been quite a uh, tour de force, if you will, of uh, how to architect and structure conversations. Yeah. I feel like this was uh, a masterclass in many respects. Literally. So thank you. 
Well, well, thanks for having me. It's really fun. And, uh, you know, anybody wants to go deep on this stuff, my podcast is 120 episodes in. And uh, it's just an innocent attempt to write a book. I didn't really want to have a podcast, but apparently it's kind of caught on with some people. And we do go into the intricacies of all of this kind of stuff, how to dominate markets by leading with the human voice. It's well, called market dominance, guys, by the way. Is that it's a Boston thing. It's a, well, an homage to the car guys. From this podcast and our audience to your podcast on market dominance, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting crossover there. I have confidence. Thank you.